0: Well, praise God, rise up. I am so excited to be with you guys today. I've just been so grateful for what God has been doing um, in our family. And last week was just such a blessing to worship with you guys, um, just to see the Holy Spirit really move through our worship and to dive into the word together and ask God You know, what is he saying to us as a body? And so I've just been so grateful to be with you guys. I'm praying that you guys have been enjoying this series. We are diving into what is now our third week of the Joshua generation. We've been going through the book of Joshua, and this has been such a blessing to me. Even just to spend the amount of time on a single text. I think it's so easy to jump from scripture to scripture as you're spending time with the Lord. But I think that there is a huge Spiritual benefit to spending time analyzing the scriptures because my prayer for our ministry is that we would continue to grow and to learn how to read the Bible and how to interpret the scriptures and how to do it in a way that is honoring to the Lord and in a way that is um, disciplined to the styles in which the authors wrote these. Books And so uh, last week what we did is we started the book of Joshua. We started Joshua chapter 1 and we went through verses 1 through 8. And we really just started having a discussion on, you know, the presence of the Lord and the promise that he had for Joshua and the Israelites in saying that I'm going to be with you, be strong and courageous. And that is, you know, a part of the book of Joshua that a lot of people may hear in church because we love to talk about the being strong and courageous, that God's going to be with us. But this book is even so much more than that. And we really see as we move forward that this is a spiritual battle that the Israelites are going to go through. Praise God. And so what we're going to do this week, and what I want to talk about is we want to go through the second half of Joshua chapter 1. And So we're going to finish up the first chapter here in Joshua chapter 1, and we're going to have a discussion about what the author is Uh, writing about and what story is being painted for us um, as we read the second half of Joshua chapter 1. So I'm going to start out in uh, verse 9 of Joshua chapter 1, and it says this, it says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Praise God. So we start out in verse 9, same way that we felt like we ended off in verse 1 through 8. Verse 10, it says, So Joshua ordered the officials of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to you after he said, Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives and your children and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all of your fighting men, ready for battle, must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you. And until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them, after that you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan. Then they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them will be put to to death. Only be strong and courageous. Man, so what I, what I want to talk about today is we have we have these uh, these what is it nine yeah nine nine verses today um, that I really want us to lean into, and this is a part of this chapter that is going to take a lot of context. Um, something that's really important as you read scripture, and something that I want to take the time for our group to learn as we dive into the Bible is we need to learn how to read the Bible. And a lot of you might be like, well. I know English for the most part, I can read the Bible, I'm good, right? But there is a whole study, and especially in the study of theology, there is a whole process called hermeneutics in which um, we create a framework of how to interpret the scriptures, right? Because as a believer, I believe that each of us have the responsibility to read the scriptures and to pull from the scriptures the messages that the authors were intending, Right? There's a concept that's really easy to do, which which they talk about in theology, where it talks about that a lot of times um, readers can read into the text. In other words, what readers can do is they can take the Bible, and we can, we can read in all of our ideas, all of the moral judgments that we have, all of our culture, all of the things that we've learned in our lives. We can take all the things that we think, And we can read things into the text and we can say, oh, well, you know, this is what the author was saying. And we can take just our ideas and we can then what happens actually is we misinterpret scripture. And then we have a misunderstanding of what the Bible is saying. And I've heard theologians say this is that if you misinterpret enough, you can basically make the Bible say whatever you want it to. Right? But there's a responsibility that each of us as believers have of say, how do I pull what the author was trying to write in the messages that are inside of this, uh, this book or this verse or whatever you're reading. And so um, all of that comes into play as you understand the context of um, the book that you're reading, as you understand the date even, or the author. Um, and a huge part of it as well is understanding what type of book you're reading, right? And so there are a lot of different genres of books within the Bible. Um, and we have to understand how do I read these books depending on what type of genre it is. And so, for instance, this book of Joshua, what we're diving into today, this is a book that is considered to be a biblical narrative, um, specifically an Old Testament narrative. And so um, and biblical narrative is similar to uh, just quote unquote, normal narratives that you would read uh, in this day is that a narrative is basically just a story, right? It's a story, um, but biblical narratives, what those do is biblical narratives were written specifically to tell a story of what happened in the past to people that were in the present, right? And so it's actually over 40% of the Old Testament books are narratives, right? And narratives have very specific, Um, structures and frameworks, right? So for instance, a narrative is different than a poem. And so the Psalms are written as poems and Joshua, for instance, and Kings and Samuels and a lot of other uh, books and Ruth, for instance, and the Old Testament, they're written as narratives. And so the author that's writing this, there was a whole framework in which Old Testament narratives were written and there were literary devices that were used. And so that's really important as you read scripture. And I know a lot of you are like, wow, this is really boring, but this is so important as you read this because this is part of our responsibility, right? And so narratives, what narratives are written as is narratives are written in scenes, right? A lot of theologians will talk about and scholars will talk about how you can think of a biblical narrative as essentially a play in our modern day, where you have this overall story that's being told, but it's being told in different scenes, if you will. Because we have to remember that these, these, the, the, the stories and the books in the Bible, that when they were written, when they were actually written by the authors, that they were not written for reading necessarily, right? Think about that. I read that this week and that blew my mind away where it's, when, when the author of Joshua wrote this book, the Bible did not exist yet, right? The canon, the Bible that you're reading, did not exist yet. And so the way that these stories were told, even when they were written, is you didn't have printing presses and you didn't have all these things. You had scribes that would, that would write down manuscripts of these. But otherwise, a majority of these stories were told orally right through through words and so the author would would write us this story in this narrative and there would be scenes that he would bring you through and there'd be characters that he would develop praise God and there would be different levels of the narrative and so biblical narratives are typically comprised of three different levels right you have the highest level of the narrative which is which is looking at what they call the meta narrative and so there's a meta narrative throughout scripture of what God is doing in regards to redeeming his people, right? So every single narrative has this overall narrative that the author is playing with of God's redemptive history. And then you have this this second level, which is God specifically redeeming the Israelites, right? In the Old Testament um, narratives. And then at the lowest level, you have these individual narratives which are, is, is where you see these these characters of Joshua and the Israelites and Moses, and you have all these narratives that are going on within the scenes. And so a lot of times what we do if we're not careful is we only look at that final, uh, the, the smallest level of narratives and we think, oh, Moses is the main character in the book of Exodus. Well, no, God is the main character in every single book of the Bible. And so not only when I read Joshua chapter one, I not only need to analyze and say, okay, what's going on with Joshua and the Israelites, what's going on between the Israelites and God, but also what is God doing at the highest level right now for his people in terms of redemption? And so these narratives, they they follow these these literary themes and they follow this framework. And specifically, I, I talk about this right now because this second half of the of the first chapter of Joshua is heavy on this. And if we don't acknowledge this, if we don't discuss this, then we miss a lot about the second half of this chapter. And so I want to just go through verse by verse. The first thing that I saw in verse 9, which is funny when I started reading it, is I had to like double check that I wasn't reading, you know, verses 1 through 8, because I remember that was such a huge part of the chapter. Because verse 9, God says to Joshua again, he says, have I not commanded you? And I think about what that must mean. He said, Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Right. This was after the Lord had already told Joshua two or three times to be strong and courageous. And so, again, I believe that the Lord looks at our heart praise god and so what i believe the author was trying to write and again people believe that this happened about 20 30 years or this was written 20 or 30 years after these events actually happened some scholars believe that Joshua wrote parts of the book of Joshua but whoever it was they had a they had a point that they wanted to make that i believe Joshua was terrified right and again this is this is yes part of a interpretation that I have, but one of the reasons, because one of the main literary themes that is used in Old Testament narratives is repetition, right? That repetition is used so much throughout Old Testament narratives. It's used a lot in modern narratives, but especially in Old Testament narratives. And, and, and part of interpreting the Bible is, is, is that when you read these narratives, if you see words that are repeated, throughout the narrative that this is a theme. This is an idea that the author is trying to allow the readers to catch on to. And right right, when I think about it, in the first nine verses, the author has written down three or four separate times where he says God was telling Joshua be strong and courageous, right? When I see that repetition, I say, okay, this is important, right? The, the author was trying to get us to understand and give us a window inside of Joshua's mind. Right? And so I just believe that, like I think about him saying, okay, God, Joshua is about to walk into his destiny, right? Joshua is about to walk into the calling of his life, right? That we're reading this thousands of years later saying, oh my gosh, Joshua is amazing. But what is just mind blowing to me as I read this is that while Joshua was about to walk into the calling and I believe the purpose of why God put him on earth He was absolutely terrified. And why is this important? I think it's so important because I have been hardwired inside of my mind by this American culture that says that if I'm doing something right, I'm going to feel comfortable. If I'm doing something right, things are going to Feel good that I live in a culture that is obsessed with comfortability, but yet when I look at Joshua, especially in this narrative, that the author wants me to know that though Joshua is walking into the calling that God has on his life, he didn't feel comfortable, he didn't feel safe, he felt scared, discouraged, even the author says. And God is telling him to be strong and courageous, right? In other words, Joshua is from what I can see through the repetition, Joshua is feeling weak and discouraged. And I just think that that's important today because I believe that there are times in my life where if I allow my emotions to guide my faith, and we talked about this last week, that I cannot allow myself to say, hey, the only way that God is moving in my life is if I feel good in my mind, if I feel good in my body, but there are times Praise God, and there's a lot of reasons why. Some of them is because the devil's trying to attack you. Some of them is because God's not going to call you to a place where you feel comfortable because then you can just do it on your own. But I see what Joshua did is Joshua said, no, I'm going to be strong and courageous. And why is that? God says, be strong and courageous, not because the Lord's going to get rid of all your enemies, not because the Lord is going to give you everything that you ask for when you want it, how you want it. Not because God's going to make my life so comfortable just because I prayed once a day. right? But But he says, be strong and courageous because the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And I think that if I can just grab a hold of that this week, if I can just grab a hold of that in my spirit is that we are called to have comfort, not because life's going to be great all the time, but because God says, I'm going to be with you. He doesn't even say, I'm going to take you out of it. He says, I'm going to be with you, that there is a blessing in the presence of God. There is a blessing in just knowing, is he saying that your faith should be that no matter what you're going through, my faith is that I know that my God is with me. That even if I'm not out of the storm, even if I'm not out of the battle, I know that my God is with me. I think about the psalm that David wrote, Psalm 27, verses 3 and 4. David wrote this, he says, Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in His temple." Man, help me, Holy Spirit. This is a man of God. This is the reason why David was a man after God's own heart. David was not perfect. David messed up a lot of different times. But the thing that amazes me is that David is surrounded by a mighty army. He is surrounded by all these attacks. And he says, even if I'm attacked, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to remain confident. And he says, the only thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most... Right, if this was me, I would say the thing I ask of the Lord is for him to you know, drop some fire down again and all my enemies would be gone. But David says this, he says the thing I think, the thing I pray about most, the thing that I seek the most is not comfortability. It's not God to take away my problems. It's not God to put them on the throne. He said the thing that I, I just ask God is, Lord, even if I get attacked, Lord, Just let me be in your presence. Let me be in your temple, Lord. Let me be in your presence, right? And there is this heart posture, and there is this faith that David had that was so mighty that he continued to run after God and said, God, even if things don't look right, even if there are armies all around me, God, that I'm going to trust you. And God, the only thing that I ask of you, God, I'm not going to ask you to give me the relationship. I'm not going to ask you to give me the car. I'm not going to ask you to make this all better. I'm not going to ask you to take away all the fear. I'm not going to ask you to do those things. God, the only thing that I'm going to ask you when I pray to you is saying, Lord, just don't take your presence away from me. God, just be with me. And God tells Joshua, he says, be confident in where I'm calling you because I'm going to be with you. And I believe that echoes across the Old Testament into the New Testament today and for me and for you and in this season of COVID is that God says, be confident and do not be afraid, not because you know what's next, but because I will be with you no matter what is next. No matter what happens in the relationship, no matter what happens with the church, no matter what happens with the family, no matter what happens with your car or with your house or with your friends, no matter what happens to you in the season, I want you to know is that God is with you, that God will never leave you and God will never forsake you. And as we lean into the heart of Joshua today, I want us to have confidence and faith and not be afraid because no matter what might happen, God has gone before you. So I see in verse 9, there's this promise of repetition that I think is so important. And I pray that we would all grab hold of the repetition and say, God, Holy Spirit, you you inspired the author to repeat this. And I believe that's the same repetition for me as God transitions me into next seasons to know that, that man, even though God's calling me somewhere and I might be scared, I can just rest in that and knowing that God is faithful and he'll always be with me praise God because in addition again with this repetition it's so important because as we read it on in, in verse 10 and 11 it says so Joshua ordered the officers of the people he said go through the camp and tell the people get your provisions ready 3 days from now you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the, the lord your god is giving you for your own praise god so the, these two verses right here i think what really stood out to me with these two verses is now we see you know god says joshua be strong and courageous remember that i'm going to be with you and then joshua starts to take command here really and he says okay he goes to the officers and he says everyone get ready in three days prepare all your belongings because in three days we're going to cross over and i thought about it in that moment i was like why did joshua say three days right but i'm reminded again there's an author that's writing a narrative here. And as we continue to read the book of Joshua, we see that that most of the time when a time frame is called out, praise God, in this narrative. And that's one thing that's really important is that a lot of the details, the authors and narratives are not typically super focused on the, the minute details of what's going on, right? Because remember, their job Their goal of writing this story is, in this situation, the author's goal is to tell the historical events of how God brought the Israelites into the Promised Land. Right? So the reality is that a lot of times, authors, you won't see, you know, Joshua was wearing a green shirt. You know, Joshua was wearing blue pants. Joshua was, you know, whatever, whatever. And so whenever you see Minute details hidden within narratives. There's a reason the author put that there, right? An example of that is when you talk about Ehud in 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 one of the judges. He talks about that Ehud was left-handed. I won't get into that, but that's a reason. Right now, is that God doesn't inspire the authors of these narratives to say. You know, Sally Joe was right-handed. Billy Bob Joe was left-handed. He was five foot eight, right? You don't see that. And so when you see little minute details, you have to look into that. You have to, to, to sit on them and say, Lord, what is that here for, right? And so I read, praise God. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I love studying the Bible, you guys. There is so much here that I don't get until I just dive into this. I have read Joshua chapter 1. More times than I am count, and I have never looked into these parts of the narrative, and this is just so exciting. I hope that you're excited. Hope you're not too excited if you're driving or something. But I look at three days and I say, God, why the details? Right. And you see actually that whenever there's a time frame in the book of Joshua, more times than not, the the the, the, the author uses the number three throughout this narrative. There's actually a thread that goes throughout this narrative and you know a lot of us we understand and we've heard about how uh, different numbers represent different things in the Bible Um, the number 40 the number three the number seven and the number three particularly this author uses a lot and the author uses number three as this important part of the narrative Um, and he uses again in almost every single time frame and the number three in the biblical sense what it represents is it represents this wholeness or this completeness right praise God that the Bible says that Jesus he was in the ground for three days then he rose from the grave there's this perfection that comes forward there's this wholeness or this completeness praise God Um, and so when I look at this I think of three days right And I see that Joshua said hey we're not gonna go in in one day we're gonna go in in three days, right? And he says, prepare yourself for three days because we're going to go in, praise God. And I think about how the number three is representative of completeness and wholeness. And what I start to see is this author is painting a picture, praise God, of the Israelites preparing their belongings, gathering their stuff as they transition, praise God, into the promised land. And there's this time frame that represents a process that God uses to bring his chosen people into the promised land. Praise God, and when I started just meditating on that and meditating on that usage that the author used of, of this number three of completion, praise God, I started really just looking at that, that, that what the author's trying to show is that there was a process that, that the Israelites went through as they crossed over, right? And I started thinking about how God brings us through processes to get us to wholeness, right? To get us to this, this completion, Praise God. And I just started thinking about that number three. And I was like, God... Man, how many times in my life Lord have I been waiting to transition into another season praise God because again what's happening the natural in the Old Testament you have to look at in the spiritual and I think that times there is a spiritual journey that God is walking me into where I'm waiting for God to bring me into a next season where I'm waiting for God to bring me into whatever that promised land might be and I'm like God why are you telling me to wait three days when I can just go right now praise God and I thought about how The Israelites, how they must have been like, oh, we just want to go right now. Why do we have to wait three days? I'll just pack up my stuff and let's go through. Praise God. But sometimes, praise God, I believe that there is a delay in crossing over because God wants you to get to a place of wholeness and completion. Now, I'm not saying that that's why Joshua waited with the Israelites, but this is is my extrapolation of saying, Lord, there is a process here. I just believe tonight that as as I'm praying and as I'm thinking about these 3 days that the Israelites had to wait, I believe that there are some people that God is preparing, praise God. Thank you Holy Ghost that he's preparing to transition into another season. And so many of us were looking around at what's going on and we feel like everyone else seems to be crossing over into whatever you perceive as the promised land, that everyone else seems to be moving forward, everyone else seems to be transitioning, and we're stuck saying, God, why am I still waiting? Praise God. But I believe that God allows us to wait, and God allows us to be prepared, because He needs us to be complete and to be whole before we transition into the next season. Praise God. That I remember the old saints, remember, I always hear that they used to say, um, you know, that God doesn't always answer when you want Him to, but He's always on time. All right. But I believe that God is preparing some of us and he will have us in holding seasons and preparation seasons, not because you're not good enough, not because he doesn't have a plan for you, but because he knows what's on the other side. He knows what we need to prepare for. Praise God. And I think of Romans chapter five, when I was praying for this, and it says, Paul said that we know that suffering, right, that suffering produces perseverance, that perseverance character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And I thought about Romans because I see that there is this process, right? That Paul lays out this process. He says, suffering, it produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope, right? And there's this process that God brings us through where God will take difficult seasons like suffering and he says that God's actually going to produce something from the suffering right and so some of us are in preparation seasons right now and we're looking over at the promised land and we're 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 asking God and saying God why can't I go now but God says prepare yourself for three days prepare yourself and prepare yourself so that you can be whole and complete and I'll bring you into that season when it's time and so I see in verse 10 and 11, that the author uses that repetition to pull out the number three. And I think there's significance in that as we interpret this. And I look at verse 12, praise God, and I want to read verse 12 and through 15, because this this really gets us into the last part of this chapter that I think really takes a deep dive into the context of what's going on. But I think it's so important because the author decided to take up verses 12 and really through 18, right, almost half this chapter to talk about This event. And so, verse 12, it says, But the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you after he said, The Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all of your fighting men, ready for battle, must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land your God, the, the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan towards the sunrise. Okay, so that's a lot of words right there. But what I see, praise God, is when I read verse 12, I see that Joshua is referencing, and he says... And he says, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, praise God. And so what, what Joshua is doing, he's actually referencing something that happened while Moses was still with them, right? And so and so to understand verses 12 through 15, we really need to look at the context, praise God, in which what Joshua is talking about. And so if we want to understand that, we have to go all the way back to Numbers chapter 21, right? Because in Numbers chapter 21, we see the Israelites, they are traveling up the east side of the Jordan, right? The, the Israelites have gone south underneath the Promised Land from Egypt, and now now they are traveling up the east side of the Jordan. Praise God! And the Bible says that in Numbers chapter 21, that while the Israelites were traveling north, the Bible says that they were going through the Amorites' land, right? And the Bible says that the Israelites that they they spoke to the Amorites and they said, "Hey, let us pass through. We're on our way to the Promised Land." The Israelites didn't want to fight the Amorites. Um, But the Bible says the Amorites would not let them pass. And so the Amorites and the Israelites began to fight. And the Israelites defeated the Amorites. And therefore, um, they continued on their journey. Now, fast forward 11 chapters to Numbers chapter 32. The Bible says that that as the Israelites were getting closer, praise God, to the promised land. And as they were divvying up all the goods that they had won from the Amorites, The Bible says that the the tribe of Reuben and Gad, that they saw that the Amorite land that was east of the Jordan was good for cattle, right? And so they go to Moses and they say, hey, this land that we just captured from the Amorites, this is good land for cattle, and we have a bunch of cattle. And so what they say is they say, Moses, don't make us go across the Jordan. Don't make us cross over the Jordan with the other Israelites. Give us the land here so that we can stay here right now again these two tribes they use the rationale of hey we have a bunch of cattle this land looks awesome for cattle let us stay here so we don't have to go across the promised land and moses gets so angry right you should read this moses gets so angry and he actually compares them to their fathers and he says hey You guys are being just like your fathers, the ones that went out and spied out the lands, right? Because remember, remember Moses sent out 12 spies. Each one was a leader of one of the tribes. And so there was a leader from the tribe of Reuben and there was a leader from the tribe of Gad. And so Moses is saying... You guys are being just like your fathers, right? You guys are discouraging the Israelites as we're about to cross over into the land, just like your fathers did. And what happened is that God's anger burned against all of Israel, and we had to wander in the Israel in into the wilderness for 38 more years because of your fathers. And He says, "You guys are doing exactly the same thing." And then what the tribe of Reuben and Gad said is, they said, "Okay, no, no, no. we promise that we will go with." the Israelites across the Jordan, that all of our fighting men, will will go with them, but then after we conquer all that land, let us go back east of the Jordan and live in this land. And so they said, let us leave our children and our wives in this land that's east of the Jordan. We'll go over with everyone else. We'll fight everyone. We'll kill everyone. It'll be great. And then we'll come back. And Moses finally says, okay, fine. If you promise to go over with the Israelites, you can stay in the land that's east of the Jordan. Right? And so I had, to, I had to ask the question when I read this, Is th- this is the context in which verses 12 through 15 and basically 18 is actually talking about. And so to really understand what Joshua is dealing with right now, because what Joshua is referencing in Joshua chapter 1 verses 12 through 18 is, is again what happened all the way back with Moses. And so Joshua has, has inherited this issue that's going on because I had to ask the question, I said, why was it that... The, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and then you actually see based on verse 12, what's interesting is in Numbers 32 um, that that Moses actually throws in uh, the half-tribe of Manasseh as well. And we don't really have any context in there of why, specifically written in Numbers 32, how they got brought in there. But I thought it was really interesting because, because, because the half-tribe of Manasseh was added into the list. So I had to ask the question, is God, why did the tribe of Reuben Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh want to stay east of the Jordan away from the rest of Israel. Why is that right because 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 god's promised land was to the west of Israel right that God did not promise them. The land of the Amorites that was east of the Jordan that was actually something that they said hey we're gonna pass through we don't even want to fight you guys and then they had to and they destroyed them so now they had open land that looked really good and so the Reubenites the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh then said hey we want to stay here we don't actually want to go into the promised land right? And so I said why is that I started doing a lot of research and and one of the main one of the amazing things that was happening here is that is that again the, the the Israelites, right, as you look at the people of the Israelites, they're actually comprised of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Right. A lot of us have heard of the 12 tribes of Israel. That the 12 tribes of Israel actually came from the descendants of Jacob, who was Israel, right? So again, you had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right? And then Jacob had 12 sons, right? And there were 12 patriarchs, right? And then not just from Jacob's sons, but also Jacob's grandsons, we then see 12 patriarchs and 12 tribes of Israel, right? So each of the tribes of Israel, right? Whether you have Reuben or Simeon or Levi or Judah or Issachar or Zebanon or Dinah or Dan or Nephi, they're all these sons of Jacob, but the tribes of Israel, you have 12 tribes that make up Israel, right? And so this was a family that this started out as, right? And so what we're dealing with right now is we're actually dealing with a family feud that's going on. Because I asked the question, I said, God, why did, what What was the issue? Why, you know, it wasn't obviously just for the cattle because Moses responded so angrily to them that what was going on? Right, but just like a lot of biblical families that we see and even families nowadays, Jacob's family had a lot of different issues that were going on. Right, and there was a really important dynamic that was happening here that, that, that if you don't, if you don't lean into this dynamic, you don't really understand what's going on contextually. Right? Because if you just read Joshua 1, I can tell you this for years, you guys, I read this as like, oh my gosh, those you know, Reubenites and Gadites, they're so amazing. They're warriors. Like, oh my gosh, like they're going in and helping other people and they can't even get their own land. But I didn't know that the, the land east of the Jordan wasn't even part of the promised land. And this wasn't some like valiant act that was going on. And actually what happened is that, is that there's a part of the Jewish custom. And this is really important to understand. And you'll see this littered throughout scripture, but a lot of us, we just kind of read over it. But there was this, there was this birthright that was a part of the Jewish custom for the firstborn son, right? That you see these blessings that would come down throughout families. And there was this birthright that the firstborn son would get. And there's this actually has a name. It's called the birthright of inheritance, Right, and this is actually spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 16. And this is a huge part of the Jewish custom in the context that we're reading these these verses in. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 16, Moses is speaking to the Israelites, and he says, and he says that if a man has two wives, right, if he has one wife and another wife, and he says that if he loves one wife but he doesn't love the other wife, he says, Whoever is his firstborn. Right, So whoever is the firstborn of the father, that he represents the father's strength. And so he says that the rights of the firstborn is given to the father's first son. So again, in our day and age in America, it'd be pretty straightforward of like, hey, my first son that I have, he gets the inheritance of the family. And so this is not only a double portion, praise God, of the inheritance, but it's also leadership over the family that the first son holds that birthright of inheritance. And so the first son is super important, right? But again, in the biblical days that at that point, and in that context, that polygamy, which was saying that a, a, a man could have more than one wife was really common. And so the question would happen to him, okay, well, if a man has four wives or like Jacob, he had four wives, which one is the first Son, right? But the inheritance or the double portion of the family and the leadership of the family that went to the first son of the first wife that the father had, right? And so the first son that was born to Jacob was Reuben, right? And so Reuben was Jacob's firstborn son. And so therefore, Reuben held the claim of. birthright for inheritance. And this was a really big deal. Praise God. But what we read about actually in Genesis chapter 35, and again, this is all context, but this is so important, is that Reuben has the inheritance of the birthright because he's the first son. But Reuben in Genesis chapter 25, that he actually sleeps with uh, Bilhah, which is Rachel's servant, which was Jacob's third wife that he took. And so Reuben sleeps with his father's wife, which was Rachel's servant. And because of that, when Jacob blesses all of his sons, that Jake or Reuben loses the inheritance that he had. And so a first son can lose his inheritance by being considered, quote unquote, unworthy. And again, this is Jewish custom, right? That this is written throughout some Jewish literature as well, called the Halka, Which is the oral Torah. So, again, there's the written Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and then there's the oral Torah, which is written, uh, which is rabbis in the Jewish tradition that talks about interpreting um, the Torah. And so, again, big point here is that Reuben was the first son, and then he lost his birthright to Joseph. Because Joseph, even though Joseph was the 11th son that was born, or sorry, the 12th son that was born to Jacob, he was the firstborn son of Jacob's second wife, which was Rachel, right? That he first took Leah, and then he took Rachel. Praise God. And so Rachel's first son was Joseph. So that's why Joseph received double portion for the birthright because Reuben once had it, but then Reuben, because he slept with um, Jacob's third wife, um, that he lost the birthright. And so this is really, really important because, you know, we're humans, right? That we're brothers, sisters, whatever it might be, we're humans. And so Reuben had to live with the fact that he did not have the birthright anymore. And so a lot of Jewish literature talks about the fact that Reuben, and Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, because, because Manasseh is important as well, because Manasseh was actually Joseph's son, right? So part of the birthright, what happens is that when Joseph, the son of Jacob, when he gained the birthright, we, send, we then see that Joseph had two sons. Ephraim and Manasseh and we read in the Bible is that when when, when Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh he actually switches his hands right that he crosses his hands and he blesses the younger son which is Ephraim and Manasseh even though he had the right to the birthright that he doesn't receive the blessing and so I see Reuben who lost the birthright and I see Manasseh who should have had the birthright Right, I see those are two of the people that said, "Hey, we want we want to get our tribes across the east side of the Jordan and we don't want to be with the rest of the Israelites." Right? And so part of this dynamic that's going on is that there is bitterness that's been held on for generations and generations and generations. And the Bible doesn't necessarily talk about it throughout scripture, but we look at it right now and there is potential divide in grudges and bitterness and division throughout the tribes of Israel and so a lot of what Joshua is wrestling with right now is Joshua's dealing with what Moses had to deal with and Moses was dealing with division that happened because specific tribes felt like that they had been slighted and that they had been let down or they hadn't received what they were supposed to receive and so literally part of the Israelites don't even want to cross over into the Jordan, and yes, there might have been that, yes, there was cattle, and there was, you know, this great stuff, but the way that Moses responds, it causes me to interpret, praise God, because again, this is an interpretation of this, that it caused me to interpret that there were dynamics going on in the family, and what I started to see is, again, I have to now, now that I understand the context, we have to finally bridge the gap into the spirit realm, into our context, and say, God, what does this show us? Not necessarily what was the author teaching us, but God, what does this show us in terms of the heart posture of the Israelites? And I'm closing with this, I promise you, is that what it shows me is that there was a bitterness and a pride in the Reubenites and in the Gadites and in the half-tribe of Manasseh, that they allowed themselves to not enter into the promised land because of the bitterness that they were holding on to. Holy Spirit, please help me finish this well, God. That there are bitterness, and there's frustration, and there's even pride. That as I hold on to my pride, as I hold on to bitterness with other people, as I hold on to grudges against other people, this limits me from entering into the promises that God has for my life. And part of those promises is simply the presence of God. That there was pride that the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, that they allowed themselves to not enter into the promised land and we realize and we figure out later down the road in 2nd Kings chapter 15 that the Israelites that specifically the Reubenites the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh that they are later attacked by Assyria and they're actually the first three tribes to be taken into captivity and so we see that even though they wanted the east side of the Jordan which was not where God wanted them to be in the first place that they're then taken away into captivity. And so I just pray this week that as we look into that, that we would say, God, where are there parts in my heart even, God, where I may be holding on to bitterness and grudges, God, or maybe I'm trying to be in a place that you haven't called me to be. And God, how can I lay down that, Lord? And how can I lean into your presence, Lord, and trust you?